You know, I want to take a minute to thank our wonderful sponsors. Without our sponsors, especially our three annual sponsors, David Carell of United Creative Concepts, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, and Campbell University Divinity School, this podcast wouldn't happen. So here's where you come in. Take a few minutes to go to each of their websites and check out what they have to offer. If you really want to take the next level, be sure to tweet about this episode and thank our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by David Carell of Universal Creative Concepts. At UCC, they specialize in partnering with churches and ministries like yours to provide quality products for your logo and branding. David likes to find the right products that represent and fit your desired need and budget. UCC can logo virtually any product that you might be looking for. Need apparel like t-shirts, jackets, polos, socks for staff, youth groups, conferences, or for many other branding needs? UCC is your one-stop shop. UCC can provide all logoed items that you use for visitors, from pins to drinkware, or tees for VBS. David desires to be your go-to guy for all items logoed. On a personal note, I've been using David at Universal Creative Concepts since 2009, and I hope you will give him the opportunity to serve your promo needs. Whatever you want logoed, David does it. Contact him today at 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. That's 1-888-GO-TO-GUY or 888-GO-TO-GUY.NET. Hey, you won't be disappointed. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we'll make you aware of the next month's worth of episodes and this week's presenting sponsors. In the next few episodes, you will hear interviews with the author of Preaching in the Era of Trump, Wes Allen, New York Times bestselling author Rachel Held Evans, and author Bree McCoy. This episode is brought to you by the 2018 Summer Conference of Baptist Peace Fellowship of North America, Bautista por la Paz. The annual conference of BPFNA, Bautista por la Paz, is for everyone who longs for spirituality, inspiration, skills, knowledge, and community that supports a life of peace rooted in justice. Peacemakers from around the world will gain inspiration, training, resources, tools, and empower their work for social justice. Join BPFNA this year from July 2nd through the 7th on the campus of Cuca College in Cuca Park, New York, for a powerful week focused on decentering powers and privilege as we seek to become a chosen, peculiar people of God. If you're interested in creating a change, both within yourself and in the world around you, Save these jades and join the welcoming community of peacemakers for the life-changing experience. Register for a full week by May 1st and receive $50 off registration costs for all persons you have registering. Visit www.bpfna.org backslash gather for more information and to register. Or call 704-521-6051 or email bpfna at bpfna with any questions. Our guest for this week's podcast is Tish Harrison Warren. She's an Anglican priest serving in the role of co-associate rector at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's from Austin, Texas, where she once served as the priest of Resurrection South Austin. She's written for InterVarsity, Christianity Today, Art House America, and much more. You probably best know her as the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary. Tish, thanks so much for joining us. 
Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I know a lot of our folks from Austin know you, um, but maybe some of our other listeners who haven't read your book, or even if they read your book, maybe sometimes we don't know the author behind the words. So tell us a little bit more about your story. Okay. Um, I don't know where to start. I'm from Austin, as you said. I um, love Austin and love Texas. Uh, my family's been there many generations. And uh, right now, I'm a priest in the Anglican Church of North America and live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My husband and I are co-associate rectors at um, Church of the Ascension here, which is a church in the middle of the city, vibrant, um, growing church uh, that is about 150 years old, which has been um, wild and great in a number of ways. First, because I job share with my husband, so that's new, us figuring out kind of what that looks like. Uh, and also because the church we were in in Austin was a church plant. And so it was really new. And we were there from literally the very first Sunday. And we, so every person who came in, we knew. And so, and, and we were just making it up. I mean, we were just building it while we were flying it with our friend, Sean, who was the church planner. And so we, you know, everything was new and now, you know, it's 150 years old. So like, you know, the cookies that we have at <laughs> refreshment time have like a long tradition. <laughs> so everything is very tradition and, uh, and, uh, but still really vibrant. I mean, it's not, it's certainly not, a place of traditionalism at all. So anyway, it's interesting. We've only been here a year and uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about me. I don't know what else to say. My favorite food is guacamole with chips and I have two daughters. <laughs> you just made me, you just made me so happy because um, I love guacamole and I really judge those that have texture issues with avocados because I don't understand them at all. I and know, I, avocados are so good. Um, yeah, but, this is super fun uh, for super for super pastors, I guess. Yeah, it, Jim Gaffigan tweeted one time: "Avocados are so good they should be reclassified as a cheese." <laughs> <laughs> he, has a, he has a nice long bit about uh, guacamole too, where uh, he argues for in favor of of chunky guac. So, uh, important question to go back to in your uh, introduction of your story. When you refer to those cookies at church, um, please tell me it's the cookies that you can wear as rings because they have the hole in the middle of them. Because when I think of church cookies, <laughs> that's the type of cookies I think about. Yeah, I mean, they. I always exaggerating by saying the cookie. I don't think the precise cookies we have have a tradition, although I could ask someone because everything's kind of been done the way it is. But we there's always cookies after the service. There's We have a fellowship hall and there's always cookies and um and you know bring if I said hey how about we didn't have cookies it would be like this I mean they've been having cookies for like you know who knows it could be a century now so <laughs> every the thing it's there's um you know there's a great amount of investment because everything is part of a story you know everything is part of uh 
every literally every rock that built this church is part of the story and so there's you know um specific vestments for instance that were given in somebody's honor given in someone's name so it's interesting just going from a church plant where everything is really really new and you're sort of you're sort of forming it to a place where you're inheriting so 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 much good good and bad you know inheriting so much well i just want to let you know if you heard that earlier that was that was the sound of my deflated excitement because I was really excited about the church cookies, but it's really cool that y'all cookies <laughs> oh, every Sunday, Sorry, Which, you know, raises another question too, you know, this whole kick of the whole 30, what do people do when it comes time for the Eucharist? Like, are people really going to deny the body of Christ so that they can fit right in with their, you know, 30 days of no grain and processed foods? That's, that's probably another conversation for another time. Um, okay. All right. So yeah, no, no, we do, we do have gluten-free wafers available. That doesn't necessarily help Whole30, but but because we do have, uh, our church has a really uh, thriving special needs ministry, and uh, so a lot of folks with special needs avoid gluten, but then we also have, you know, celiacs and people that are gluten-free for various reasons, so we do actually consecrate gluten-free wafers, and then then we just have, you know, your regular, your regular wafers as well. So, yeah. so, well, they could, so every now and then someone comes up to me and says, can I have gluten-free? And I like go back and get the gluten-free body of Christ and, and give that to them. Yeah. <laughs> I just love the idea. There are genuine dietary restrictions. And then there are those that have first world problems that want to do whole thirties. Um, so here's my question. <laughs> uh, moving to Pittsburgh, you've been there for around a year. You said, have you made it to the original uh, Permanti brothers? location and the strip district uh it's right around the allegheny river right across from the uh, pittsburgh pirate stadium i know you're gonna kill me i oh, haven't no. i've never like, had a permanent brother sandwich oh no 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 they, they have so I many know. locations too but uh, that was I know, like when i came I, know. Work, I was like i've got to do it so i i went over there and, and for those that are you know wondering what i'm talking about or you know what you're apologizing for even though you don't need to apologize it's uh imagine this massive sandwich that has everything. So the history behind it is that they made a sandwich for steel workers that they didn't have to use. Um, you know, they didn't have a plate. So I didn't have time for that. So there's these two huge pieces of Italian bread that have your meat, mm-hmm. the Italian dressing, coleslaw, tomato slices, and the French fries all stuffed in and wrapped in wax paper. And it's, it's something else. That's right. Was, so. I know. And it's really famous. And we, we actually have a gift certificate. Someone, so kindly gave us from our church so that we can have it. Uh, and there's one that actually we could walk to from our house, but we haven't done it because there's never been a time that my husband and I think we want a sandwich with meat and coleslaw and fries and like, there's never a moment that we've been, that we think that sounds good right now. Yeah, It just sounds it sounds like something we have to do to be from Pittsburgh, but it's almost like a dare. Like when you were like a kid and your friends would mix together a bunch of kinds of food and then dare you to eat it. It feels like that's what it is. And we have to go eat the sandwich so we can say we've done it, but it just sounds terrible. So we haven't. But I will say the other Pittsburgh food is pierogies, which I've, I never had had. I mean, that's not you know, part of, that's not part of the culture I'm from in Texas anyway. So, um, so I have had pierogies 
here and I love them. I, it was like the food I had always been searching for and never had found until I came to Pittsburgh. So I love them so much. Wow. There's, do you know what they are? They're essentially like a dumpling stuffed with mashed potatoes and cheese. They're incredible. And, and you eat them with sour cream and they're awesome. I just love and, the and fact you that have uh, beer. You drink them with beer and you have <laughs> beer with them. And they're awesome. Pittsburgh's pretty much known yeah. for like state fair like food, basically, is what we're saying. So, um, yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it, it is all steel workers that burned, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of calories making and lifting steel all day. And so they have all this really high content, fat content, cheap food. The problem is that Pittsburghers no longer make steel. So it's now people, you know, sitting in front of the internet all day, but also eating pierogies and Pramati Brothers sandwiches. <laughs> so, glad, so glad you you framed Pittsburgh, you know, in such such a beautiful life. Well, my hope for you, I mean, my wish for I you is that. Texas. <laughs> so it, I, I think Texas is second in the nation besides Mississippi for you know, m- most obesity. So I am not throwing any stones here at all. <laughs> I'm just saying the food was not made for the culture that we currently, the food was made in a different culture, in a right. different cultural space than what we currently inhabit. I love the fact that if both of us were to look back and we'd say, this is where the conversation's gone so far. It, it excites me. And, but also <laughs> I, I, I have to throw this out there. That I you can I, edit this part out. Oh no, it's staying in. It's staying in. Uh, so my hope for you is that you will go, go to the original site in the strip district along the river there. You know, get a sandwich, mm-hmm. eat it, and then walk across the bridge and go to a Pittsburgh Pirates game, and you will you will enjoy. I'm not even from Pittsburgh, and it was like I felt like part of the city then. So, but uh, yeah, that actually sounds super super fun. And we are um, Pirates fans. My husband took my uh, oldest daughter to a Pirates game last year, and she completely loved it. It was her first professional baseball game, and she thought it was the most amazing thing she'd ever been part of. So we, uh, I stayed home because our, our youngest was too little to be able to do that. But we, this summer, we planned to go to Pirates games as much as possible. Well, if you'll refrain from screaming stalker, um, I've been following your writing since 2015. <laughs> and uh, I think one of the things oh I Oh my you- gosh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate that because a lot of folks, uh, you know, have, have heard of me recently or since the book or, and 2015 is a while. Thank you. Well, when you find a good blog, you find a good blog. Um, so I, I think... I think one of the things I value the most about your writing is that um, you're a public priest and take, for example, your openness uh, to share, not just what's happening in your life as a priest in Austin and now in Pittsburgh, but how uh, you share what's happening in your, in your personal life and how that shapes you as an individual and your calling as, as a priest. So uh, for example, uh, your public lament in this past fall in which you shared uh, Mm -hmm. the health struggles of your family, the loss of your father and this transition across the country. I guess my first question is, uh, why the open book approach? Um, like, why share about my life, you yeah. mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, 
That's an interesting question. I mean, it's interesting for me because in, in many, many ways, I, I, I don't feel like an open book. Um, so I, I don't have a blog, strictly speaking. I mean, I don't, like, I don't have a site that I, I write on a lot. Everything I write is, every, everything I've written so far is for edited sites. It's for other places. And then I, I have a website where I kind of publish that, but it's so, so I only publish like 10, 12 things a year, as opposed to, you know, if I had a blog, you post frequently, right? Like you can post five things in a day. Um, so I, um, there's a lot that I don't share about my life. There's, uh, I, for instance, um, really avoid, I've never put, um, I try not to feature my children um, a ton, especially I don't like tweet about my kids or um, sometimes I'll tweet about funny things they say, but I don't uh, try to do photos or that sort of thing. I don't, you know, tweet when my husband and I get in fights or anything <laughs> for various reasons, but although I did write about one in the book, but um, so in some ways I feel like there's a lot that, um, that, I don't share, but the, the, the public lament was a pretty vulnerable um, piece where I shared a lot about my own life. And that was interesting. That was, it was such a hard year with the loss of my dad and the loss of two children um, and miscarriage. Uh, one of them was a second trimester miscarriage. And um, it was so painful and I didn't say anything about it online. And in fact, was writing other things, um, and some of which were getting were getting lots of attention and very controversial on the web at the time. And so, you know, throughout that whole eight months, all this stuff was happening in my personal life, and no one knew about it. And the book really took off. So if people were standing on the outside, it would seem like this is a great season of my life I'm, I'm working at a great church and the book really took off but on and my friends in our community knew we were I was I mean 2017 was the worst year of my adult life easily um so I got to this weird place where it felt like I couldn't write about anything else um without mentioning it. It felt somehow disingenuous to write about, um, I don't know, th theology of food. And when I, when I had all this like deep private pain happening, I said it, it felt like um, chatting with your neighbor about the election while you're, the roof of your house is on fire. Like it just felt like I was putting these things out um, and not without any reference to, to what was happening in me internally. But it also felt strange. I, I didn't want these losses, and especially um, the life of my dad and, and these babies, to in any way be like part of my platform. I didn't, I didn't want this to be a hook to talk about something else. Like to, I mean, friends who knew me were saying, you know, are you going to write about this? You're going to write about the grief of miscarriage? You're going to write about like 
being pro-life in the midst of having a miscarriage? Are you going to write about the grief of your dad? And it just felt premature to make it, um, to make it part of, of, of my writing corpus, I guess. I, I just, so I was, I just felt so stuck for a while that it felt like I couldn't, um, couldn't talk about something else while ignoring this, but I didn't want to use this in any way to advance a platform or to advance an argument about anything. I mean, because my father's life and these kids' life isn't part of an argument. So I didn't know what to do. So I took a couple of months off writing. And when I came back, I just started writing. I just kind of needed to write. And, um, and so I wrote this piece kind of just telling people what was happening and trying to tell it as straight as possible. And, um, and I quote um, a play in it where the um, playwright asked the question, how do you keep your life from turning into an anecdote? Which I really, really identified with. And um, so I wrote about that. And then I decided I didn't know whether to publish it or not. I didn't know what to do with it. And um, showed it to a friend of mine who's a mentor, has been a writing mentor from the beginning. And she said, I think you should put it out there. And so I went with the well because they were the first place I ever published a piece. And so they felt it felt really homey. And they got it. They got what I was doing. So they didn't edit it. Um, and it was just really my voice. And this may be stupid that this was important to me, but they also don't pay, which at this point I get paid a lot for my writing, but I didn't want to get paid to to tell about this deep grief in my life so um which is also you know you people edit less when when they don't pay so it just felt like this homey safe place I could put it out there um and I did you know and I and I put it out there thinking that you know my frequent readers would read it but it actually kind of did go pretty viral and lots of people read it But I just wrote that because I was stuck, you know, it felt like I had, I kind of gained this voice and walking through what I'm learning is walking through grief changes you. It just does. Like, I feel like a different person than I was two years ago. And so what happens when you, when you have a voice online and then, and then your voice changes, you change and your life happens. And, and, and so having to have discernment about how much of that to share and how much not to is actually really, really hard. And it's something I constantly wrestle with. And, and people in the ministry wrestle with this too. I mean, when you're walking through a hard time in, in your marriage, how much do you share that with your church versus how much do you not share? Who um, Can you have you know friends, buddies that are your parishioners or congregants? You know, or is that always... I mean, I have a friend, um, Craig Barnes, wrote, who's the, he's the president of Princeton Seminary now, but he wrote a piece more or less arguing you can't be friends with your parishioners, you can't be friends with your congregants. And um, so this is a going question of, as a public person, whether you're a writer or a priest, how much of yourself to share. But I actually have tried, I mean, there is, I think, in women's online Christian writing, a sense of you always have to be more and more vulnerable. You have to self-disclose more and more and more. And I've actually tried to resist that of um, there are particular relationships and people in my life that would make really good stories, but I haven't told 
that yet because I it's a private relationship that I'm not I don't want to make that public yet. We need to pause to tell you about one of our presenting sponsors, Campbell University Divinity School. Committed to Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused theological education, and to commit to helping you answer your call with a variety of Master of Divinity and doctoral-level programs. Curious about what Campbell's mission looks like in action? You should meet Cindy Bolden, who earned both an MDiv and DMIN from Campbell Divinity. A self-described love activist, Cindy embraced the call to love her neighbors in Glenwood South and downtown Raleigh. Armed with chocolates and hugs and good books, Cindy fosters community among local shoppers, young professionals, empty nesters, and the homeless. She helped launch A Place at a Table, Raleigh's first pay-what-you-can cafe, and she helped create Glenwood Gathering, a monthly meeting that makes neighbors out of strangers. Campbell Divinity School helped Cindy explore her call, and she discovered what a community minister in Glenwood South was her parish. Now, that's Christ-centered, Bible-based, and ministry-focused. How might Campbell help you discover or shop in your call? To get a taste of the Campbell experience and a taste of local flavors of Greenville, North Carolina, you are invited to attend the next Fed Talk. That's Theological Education Talk at Oakmont Baptist Church on April 22nd. You'll enjoy engaging lectures from Professor Barry Jones, Lydia Hoyle, and Caleb Oladipo, along with delicious food from local favorites. Best of all, you'll experience the legendary Campbell Divinity School community for yourself. For more information about Fed Talks or to subscribe to the upcoming issue of Campbell Divinity School magazine that features Cindy, the love activist, visit divinity.campbell.edu. I think to clarify what I meant, and I don't, I certainly don't think it is, it is really easy for any of us who have some sort of platform to, to prostitute ourselves out for more clicks. Um, and when I say you're a public priest, you know, what I mean by that is that you have the ability to, to take crisis, to take grief, to take, um, the things that most of us might hide away and to, to, to talk about it theologically and to talk about mm-hmm. the real pain that's in that. I mean, what we often present, um, and I say we as if I'm some sort of public person, I just happen to have a, the ability to interview people for our, our um, fellowship, but uh, we have, sometimes we, we, we turn it into this perfect picture of how we came around this, how we conquered this, but you don't, you, you present it in such a way that's like, this is, this is a terrible thing that I've experienced. Um, this theologically, <laughs> yeah. and I, I mean that in the utmost um, in the utmost respect, and as a compliment to say that I think you do that well. And and so I wonder if you do that through your writing, you know, is that how you um, is that how you minister day to day? You know, how does how does that approach to ministry strengthen your relationship with those that you minister to? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I um. I don't, I don't mind the term public priest. Nobody's ever called me that before, but I like it. Like I'll take it. I actually wrote it down. Um, okay. I get, I get uh, 8% credit for anything that comes as a result of that. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I will take that. Um, uh, in the sense that, I mean, I think unavoidably my life and what I'm walking through informs my writing and informs my preaching and informs my ministry. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's real. And, and I just think it's, it's an, every single day, kind of a constant, um, 
discernment process that I do in community of, of what to share and, and what not to share. And, um, you know, that it's a really, really hard thing. It's a hard thing because so much of us now, so many people live their lives so externally, so publicly. So when I do sometimes feel like Twitter, you kind of get a topic of the day. You know, like today is the day we're all talking about gun control. And there's the sense of every single person has to go right now and tell everyone their opinion on gun control. And if you're silent, then you, you're, you know, apathetic you are part of the problem. And so, and then, you know, the next day it's something else. The dreamers, so everybody has to talk about that. And the next day it's like Trump said something stupid. Now everyone has to say their opinion on that. And so, um, but then I have this pastoral task to like actual human beings, real people in my church. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the blessings of my church is it really is ideologically diverse, like very, very much. So we have, we have fairly far right to quite far left. Um, so it's a, it's a gamut. And so um, figuring out, you know, when to share and what's helpful and, and when not to, it's really, I think it's really hard. And, and, you know, scripture says, you know, be slow to speak and quick to listen um, and I think the temptation of being a public priest or a public person, or even just someone on social media is that, um, we're really fast to speak. And there's a fear that if we're silent, that we are complicit with oppression. So no, so it just takes a lot of discernment. And, um, and yet, you know, the only thing I can do as a, as a pastor and as a writer is bring myself like bring who I actually am. So um, I can't put it in a nice tidy bow because I am, I am not a nice tidy person. <laughs> so <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I, I just hopefully am honest with my writing and with my priesting, with my being a pastor to people. I don't know. Am I answering your question? I don't really know if I am. I don't oh. know what the question is. Oh, for sure. Um, so proverbially being a public priest, we're, we're just going to go over that terminology. Um, proverbially. Okay. I am a public priest. Yeah. I've never said that before in my life, but now <laughs> I'm going to put it and I'm going to change, change my Twitter profile to, to Sherrison Warren, public yeah. priest. Nice. <laughs> So has, has this, has this ever smacked you in the face proverbially? Being a public priest? Mm-hmm. Um, like in what way? I don't know. What, it, what do you mean? Has it, uh, has it ever come back to bite you? Has, has it ever, have you ever had an instance where, you know, um, laity want you to be a little less honest and a little, little more in their mind, mm. you know, put together, uh, presentable in a mm -hmm. way that they, the views. And I guess, I, and maybe that that's kind of coming behind the question is, you know, how often we are expected to um, present what's best. Um, <laughs> I have this, uh, this moment uh, very early on in my vocational um, calling where um, 
I wasn't quite leading worship yet, but I was part of the pastoral staff and I was sitting in worship and just kind of chewing on a piece of gum. We all chew on a piece of gum because occasionally we get terrible breath and I'm, I'm sitting there <laughs> you know, not, not doing anything except being a participant in worship. And afterwards, this, uh, this lady came down from the choir, like she was beelining to me. And I thought, good gracious, what is she about to come talk to me about? She came up to me and I'll never forget her just scolding me with such fury of, how dare I, as a public figure, um, be chewing gum in, chewing gum. in, in public? <laughs> and I know that it's such a kind of that a... Kind of, make sense. It's, you know, it's such a jovial <laughs> example, but, you know, when you present something less than what others view as professional, sometimes it can blow up in our face. So I don't know. I don't know if there's been an instance for That's you interesting. Where, where being... Uh, being open, being honest about who you are, what you're dealing with, if, if that has come back to bite you? Um, it hasn't, well, okay, so yes and no. It, it hasn't so far, partly because I, I am pretty careful about what I share, and I'm especially careful when I'm sharing other people's lives. It's a hard thing for uh, priests or pastors to be writers, because you, because, um, other people's stories are part of your story. Inevitably, your work is made of other people's stories. And so when do you share, when do you start um, telling other people's stories when you're trying to tell your own? So I'm pretty careful about that. And I don't publish stuff without talking to the people that I'm writing about, even if I use a pseudonym. Um, uh, there's some exceptions to that. There's actually been a few times I have, mainly when. I feel like people have, <laughs> when people have behaved badly and wronged me, um, I've sometimes changed the, um, there's a place in the book where I, I change somebody's name to protect the guilty. Uh, so yeah, it, I, it hasn't exactly in the same way. And, and my congregations that I've been in are, are quite gracious places. So they don't, me to 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 be all together I mean we we they know that I am a sinner and um so I'm grateful for that um I will say uh one way that uh, I can think of two things one is that because I am um a priest and a and a female priest I'm a lightning rod a little bit um, so I get criticism fairly frequently from both the left and the right, um, for things that I write. And so, um, especially at the beginning, even still, I could be publishing on anything. I mean, I wrote a piece about Miley Cyrus once and, or, you know, um, I wrote a piece on Parks and Rec once, and I still get emails that are like, how do you justify calling yourself a female priest? And it was that nothing, it's not like I wrote about being a female priest. It's not like I was writing an argument about why I'm for women's ordination. It had nothing, it was, had nothing to do with that. And still very frequently I get emails and that are sort of angry or, you know, have been called the, Bane of the church and the what's you know 
going to bring the church in America down. Um, and then I'm also in a denomination, with my particular brand of Anglicanism, where there's there's a lot of contention and fighting about whether or not women should be priests. Um, so because I'm a public figure, uh, some of that has splashed on me, um, where there's a lot of people in, in my own denomination who aren't um, for female priests and sort of they they are uncomfortable with my existence. I mean, they're uncomfortable with the fact that I'm an Anglican female priest writing publicly. So that can be hard. Although I have also lots of people in my denomination who are very supportive of me. And, and most importantly, my bishop has been incredibly supportive of me. So that's really all that matters um, in terms of, you know, my own kind of church hierarchy. But I do have to take, I mean, I, it is a, I, I don't want to over-exaggerate this because I'm fine. I really am fine. But there is pain involved in being a female who is a public priest. But there's just inevitable pain from that. But because I am pretty orthodox, I mean, I hope orthodox um, and believe the scriptures to be authoritative and um, and pretty traditional Christian, I also get um, hit from the left as well because of public views I've taken. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Once you are public, people assume that they know you uh, and everything about you. So even some things I haven't written or spoken about, people assume they know what I think on those things. And then I've gotten letters from readers and, um, and and all the letters I've gotten from readers have been really positive, but I've noticed conservatives assume that I'm more liberal than I probably am, and, and liberals consume, assume I'm more conservative than I probably am. Uh, those are obviously slippery and fraught terms, but um, so, uh, yeah. So, so sometimes people yell at me for things where I'm like, well, I, I actually kind of agree with what you're saying. So. Um, that's been interesting. And I will say that having a political, having a, a, um, a lot of political diversity in our church has been really good. But um, I have gotten some, I, I preached on, on against racism and, and white supremacy, and really because the scriptures brought it up. And, um, and I, I got, you know, an email, an angry email. Uh, and, but I, um, met with that person one on one, and we had a great conversation that lasted over an hour and ended really beautifully. And really, um, I think we both grew from it and learned from it. So, I do think in the context of an actual embodied community, you're able to have those conversations better. And what was funny is she, um, you know, she's probably politically to the right of me. And I was able to tell her, you know, on Twitter, people think I'm like super crazy conservative, like Amish, like compared to like the particular people that I follow on Twitter. And she laughed, you know, because she's a, she's an older woman that um, was really surprised by that, you know? And so uh, I think 
I, I don't know. I think I think um, when you're a public priest or a public pastor or a public person in any way, you can become a bit of a Rorschach test where people kind of project on you what uh, whatever they want, you know. And sometimes that's negative, and sometimes that's that's really positive. And um, but it it's not real. It's not accurate all the time. I just um. I can't believe you haven't figured out how to make everybody love you and agree on everything. And, and secondly, I can't believe you got away with criticizing Miley Cyrus among Anglicans in Pennsylvania and you still have a job. That's just, that's absolutely. I didn't criticize Miley Cyrus actually. It it was just, that was one of the first pieces I ever wrote. I didn't criticize her. I, I actually was saying that um, it was after her whole twerking thing that got her, I can't remember. This was so many years ago. Um, but uh, no, it was actually a piece about how um, we don't have rights of passages for young women in America. And so the only way for women to prove their adulthood is by sexualizing themselves and how that's really um, damaging to women. And we need to create rites of passage rites of how how do you say it rites of passage that's right i was going to say rites of passages but that doesn't even make sense rites of passage for women and young men in the church so that they don't feel like the sex is their rite of passage to adulthood Hmm. that's what the piece was about that was in ct women but it was hermeneutics at the time yeah that was the first piece i ever published for them that's the only time I've ever written about Miley Cyrus. Also, I really have no strong opinions about Miley Cyrus. It was more of a jumping off point to talk about women and sexuality. I'm sure these days she would appreciate anybody writing about her. But uh, so, all right, as I consider um, <laughs> business of life. I do, I do have strong opinions about Parks and Rec, though, because I mentioned that and I love it. So that is my strong opinion. <laughs> I was at lunch quoting Ron Swanson to somebody. Um, I can't repeat the quote here. Ah, yes. One more pause in our episode. Today's podcast episode is brought to you by Shine, Living in God's Light, a dynamic Sunday school curriculum co-published by Minnow Media and Brethren Press. Together, one small step at a time, your church can be a place where children are welcome, known and loved by God. A space where Jesus' good news of peace is proclaimed. A space where small and tall learn together about God's story. A space where children are encouraged to shine. Providing resources for teachers and children ages 3 through grade 8, Shine Curriculum is easy to use with detailed teacher's guide, colorful and engaging student pieces, and resource packs with music CDs for both preschoolers and elementary children. To learn more, visit shinecurriculum.com. Let Shine inspire your church to follow Jesus and grow in faith so that children are nurtured and sent into the world to shine. So, all right, I consider uh, the busyness of life and work and family. Uh, It can be somewhat nauseating. A daily routine is filled with what I like to call organized chaos of what is next. Mm -hmm. And you, on the other hand, have framed this extraordinary new way to see life through a filter of, of liturgy. Um, how we can see everyday routines of checking email. And I literally just threw up in my mouth thinking about all the emails I have to, to check this afternoon and answer. Uh, brushing our teeth and walking um, the spiritual practice of discovering holiness each day. 
And all this is through the liturgy of the ordinary, sacred practices in everyday life. You, you don't need my endorsement, um, since you've already received numerous awards of his books, including Christianity Today's Formation Award, Spiritual Formation Award, and Christianity Today's Beautiful Orthodoxy Award. So um, what, what was the motivation behind this book? Because we don't give too much away, because we, we want people to go buy it off Amazon. Yeah, that would be great. Or you're an independent bookseller, even that's, better. That's um, true. So, yeah. Um, so the motivation, like I think most people's books, uh, was me struggling with that. I really, really struggle with everydayness. I feel like most people's book, at least the the best books, come with people trying to figure things out for their own lives, and so. I struggle a lot with um, living life in the day-to-day. I tend to be abstracted. I tend to want to um, jump from sort of uh, revolutionary experience to revolutionary experience. And um, so living life in these 24-hour days with my own limits is really hard for me. And so um, I... You know, in in my 20s, I um, worked with drug addicts. I lived in Africa and in Western Uganda near Congo, and I I lived in community for a season. I studied theology in seminary, and um, and I I worked with churches trying to get them involved with folks in poverty, and um, I worked with homeless teenagers, and I loved all of that. I did. Um, but and then you know I found myself in my 30s, uh, married and and with two kids and trying to figure out how in the world do I follow Jesus and as a, with such a normal life <laughs> and, and a and like a mortgage and debt and figuring all of that out and um and I didn't want the answer to just be okay, just now be a good little American and consume and get your 401k and don't think about anything else or the redemption of the world. But I also, um, I also needed to figure out how in the world my actual life, my life that I was living in front of me and, and boring parts of my life, um, like family budgets and, you know, doing dishes had anything to do with the kingdom of God. And so there were a lot of books at the time about um, the ordinary and uh, that's kind of a genre, right? Of kind of ordinary life mattering to God. Uh, But I felt like I was reading them and it was always sort of the fact that ordinary life mattered, but, but it felt like another kind of point of doctrine to hold in my head. And I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to incorporate that in my life. I mean, what did it mean to know that this matters? Like I'm folding the laundry, telling myself, you know, Jesus cares about this towel that I'm folding. I mean, it just didn't, it seems like this weird interjection of devotion in a, in a way that didn't make sense to me. And so I was wrestling with how, how and why, why does ordinary life matter? How does it matter? And so I came across the idea of formation, largely through James K.A. Smith and his book, Desiring the Kingdom, which was really transformational for me. 
And simultaneously, I I was an Anglican. I mean, I was becoming, I, I didn't grow up Anglican, but I was becoming an Anglican. And I was in the ordination process of, um, which was long and slow for me. I mean, took, it took me a long time to figure out if I was for women's ordination, then if I was for my own ordination and, and then to go through the process of long. So um, I was holding, so liturgy is an incredibly important thing in my own life, thinking about liturgy, thinking about formation and Christian formation, and then thinking about the ordinary. And so I kind of took those three strands and, and started with that and was wrestling with my own life, with my own day. So the book is about one day in my life, 24 hours, less than 24 hours in my life. That was a quote that sticks out to me. Um, Changing this ritual allowed me to form a new repetitive and contemplative habit that pointed me towards a different way of being in the world. Um, I think one of the things that I appreciated most about um, about this book um, is it wasn't, you know, oftentimes these spiritual uh, disciplines, this realigning of our life around Christ are so um, individualistic. but yeah, yours was a call to uh, to see beyond ourselves and into the this greater world around us. Mm-hmm. Good, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Again, like I don't know if anyone has mentioned that about my book, but I'm really, really glad to to hear that. I think I do think that we um, tend to talk about spiritual formation and. Um, spiritual practices as a things that we insert into our day. So they're not what you're already doing. They're not work. They're not sleeping. They're not going to work or, I mean, like, you know, driving your car to work or to the grocery store, taking care of your kids, loving your neighbor, you know, whatever, caring for the homeless guy down the street. Like we don't think of those as spiritual practices. We think of like, you know, our quiet time as spiritual practices. And I'm all for, I'm all for quiet and silence and practicing solitude. I'm all for scripture memorization. And, but, um, but I think there's something lost if we only think of spiritual formation and spiritual practices as those things, which we insert into our life instead of, you know, every hour of our life and the way we spend it that is, those are spiritual practices. And, um, and then with that, I also think B, what you said that we, we tend to think of, because we think of spiritual practices as these things we do and insert in our life, we tend to think of it, at least I'll say, I tend to think of it as, you know, going and spending the silent hour, you know, next to the ocean which I don't even live near the ocean. So that's like my ideal, right? Like going on the, um, going and being at the monastery. Like I, we tend to think about it as this sort of thing that people with lots of spare time and or money can do. Um, whereas I think spiritual practices are not just things we insert in our life. It's all of our life. And I also think it's not just, the thing that you can do when you have lots of free time. It's 
what it means to encounter God in the life you actually have. And so that's what my book's about. Well, I agree with you. I think um, as I um, pastor a local congregation and I, I talk about um, formation, spiritual formation, uh, for me, I use uh, the simple moments of my life. Um, you know, for me, uh, I enjoy cooking. And every night I cook for my family. And it's a, it's a spiritual discipline for me. It's, it's something to be said about yeah. getting into the rhythm of finding um, the right spices, the right things that fit together uh, to make a meal that brings nourishment to my family. And a lot of people who might be high and holy say, no, yeah, you need to have those moments. You need to have those quiet time moments, those long walks. The, you need to do the prayer labyrinth. I get that, yes. But for me, um, there is nothing more empowering, uh, more spirit-filled um, than the act of cooking. And I know that sounds so strange, but I've, I feel like that's what your book oh, is. No, it's not strange. That's really beautiful and completely makes sense. Right. I mean, totally. I, I bring this up in the, I'm sorry. I cut, I want you to finish. Oh no. I interrupt? You're, you're the, you're <laughs> the star of the episode. I'm just the guy that asked the question. So no, seriously, you can interrupt me. <laughs> and you're not interrupting me. I was done. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, um, first of all, that's beautiful and that's awesome. And now all the women that are listening to this are turning to their husbands and are like, what, what, are you going to cook for me now? Um, because that's so great. But, um, but I think uh, I also, I bring up, I, I don't mention this in the book, but I've said this several times in the talk is that it's, it's, it is curious to me um, that one of the very, very first acts we see um from the resurrected Jesus is that he makes breakfast for his friends. He makes fish uh, um, for his friends. And so um, I love that like he, he's resurrected. I mean, he has risen from the dead and he's making fish on the seashore for his friends. And so I think when we, so it, so could it be that when we, prepare meals we're we're practicing resurrection i mean we are recalling what jesus did in his resurrected body and we're joining in that work i i love that idea of jesus in his resurrected state still cooking <laughs> it just is such a, a mundane and ordinary practice and i mean i just i don't know i think of the resurrection and he should be like sailing around the clouds or I don't know, like going to get revenge on his enemies, but he's, he's just cooking a meal. And, and so I think cooking is a way to practice resurrection. So this image of Jesus, uh, you know, wind sailing across the clouds, as you said. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, um, you know, to our readers go, go, go buy the book. Um, but there's something that I think to sell on, on you and you don't have to, you don't have to affirm this, but uh, reading not only your book, but reading, uh, your I'll, I'll affirm what, if you're about to sell me, I'll yeah. affirm it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, reading your book and reading, um, all your writing pieces, um, you know, that you accumulate into, into your website. Um, 
you know, I, I asked you in preparation for this conversation, what's next for you? And your response was so telling to me. You said, I'm just being a priest and writing occasionally now. And I, I don't know if you meant uh, anything more than that, but that to me um, brings so much value and worth to the words that you have actually written that um, while you are seeing uh, people respond greatly to this book that you've written and to the many other pieces you've written through Christianity Today, um, you're not selling yourself out there to do something um, else. You're doing what God has called you to and stepping into um, the words that you've actually written. And I think that speaks volume for your character and, and speaks volumes for the words that you've actually written. So thank you for that. I don't know if you meant anything uh, more than that, than that but that meant a lot to me. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I didn't, I was, I didn't know what you were going to, you told me you were going to quote my email and I had no idea what, cause uh, you just asked what's next. And I don't know now. I mean, I'm, uh, the book has done um, better than I or anyone expected. And so, um, and I'm grateful. I'm so grateful, but um but yeah, I mean, right now I'm a priest at this church and, and very much trying to, by, hopefully by God's grace, walk into what God's called me to. Um, yeah, it's a hard thing. I mean, it, it's a really hard thing. Eugene Peterson writes in The Pastor about his writing life and his pastoring life. And he, he, he has a whole chapter on it. And it's, he talks about how sort of one flows seamlessly into the other and and then and you know, the pastoring flows into the writing, the writing flows into the pastoring. And I, I get that on some level, but the actual living of that is is really has been really hard. Partly because the um the book has as the book has done well, um writing and and being asked to speak and um things like this podcast and looking at other people's books and um and that sort of thing has just taken up more and more time in my life and so figuring out how to hold together a, a pastoral ministry and a priestly ministry um and have time for writing and still be a mom and a wife and a sane human being is difficult it's difficult and so thanks I appreciate it I, I don't know what that'll look like in the future. I have no idea, but thanks. Author of The Liturgy of Ordinary, Anglican Priest, Tish Harrison Warren. You can find more about her at tishharrisonwarren.com. You can follow her on Twitter, and we need to find out who has Tish Warren because you had to do at Tish underscore H underscore Warren. Uh, so we'll, <laughs> we'll find that person and demand they, they give up their Twitter <laughs> Yeah, I don't even know. I've never even looked. Yeah. I came so late. (laughs) Well, thank you for uh, engaging the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. This podcast is presented to you by the School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and the Doctor of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling that God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctor of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministries or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, 
You will find a place here at Gardner Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. Join us for the 2018 Pastor School, May 28th through the 30th, in partnership with Pittman Center of Congregational Enrichment. This year's guest speaker topics will focus on leadership and perilous times. For more information on the Divinity School and upcoming events, visit gardner-web.edu backslash divinity. Well, that's our episode. We'll see you next week. Visit cbf.net for more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, stories about our field personnel, chaplains, and church starters, as well as our advocacy work around the world. 